0: In the world of linguistics, there are very few people with a resume as impressive as Adele Goldberg. She has had a major influence on the way that we understand and study language. In this very special interview, we talk about vocabulary learning, input versus output, and her language acquisition research. I hope you enjoy it. Adele Goldberg, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: The, the first question I wanted to ask you is actually about where you work, because although you're a linguist and a lot of your work is related to linguistics, you're actually in the Department of Psychology. And could you explain why that is?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I actually find um, findings in psychology are hugely important to understanding language and how it's learned and how it's processed. Um, linguists have always cared about psychology and principle, so when modern linguists was, linguistics was created, people talked in terms of it being part of cognitive science. Um, and these days more and more people are really fulfilling that promise by studying psychology and language.
0: I also wanted to ask you actually about something which you replied to me in the first email I sent you. You said, um, Thank you very much for spreading the word that language depends on context and communication. And and actually, I thought it was kind of a little bit of a strange thing to say, because what other way is there of, of viewing language if it's not about context and communication? Uh,
1: well, now you're opening Pandora's box in the world of linguistics. So um, there's been a big chasm in the field between those of us who want to emphasize meaning and communication. And... Um, other linguists who follow a more, um, Chomskyan perspective, which has held sway, um, in some departments since the 1950s or 60s, and they argue that, um, it's advantageous st- to study language in purely formal terms, purely in terms of, of syntactic properties and remove it from communicative situations.
0: Hmm. And, and obviously that's something which um, I think is falling out of favour a little bit now. Um,
1: I think it is, yeah. I think it is.
0: Yeah, obviously stu- studying language doesn't make a lot of sense if, if you don't include um, communication. You know, just from a purely out- outsider's point of view.
1: No, that's right. That's right. If you're not immersed in the world of linguistics, it seems absolutely obvious. It um, But in the world of linguistics, you'd be surprised how controversial it is.
0: I know that a lot of your 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 work, especially your recent work, has been to do with vocabulary learning, and um, especially vocabulary learning in babies and children. And so um, what what does the science sort of tell us about... What what do we know about the way that babies and children learn vocabulary?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, We know surprisingly little. So it's clearly, in principle, a challenging task to learn words because babies hear a continuous stream of sounds and they have to attach meanings to these. um, First, they have to break up the speech stream into units and then they have to assign meaning, and often there are multiple meanings for each word. Um, But it's clear that children are actually very good at this task, and they learn not only individual meanings, but multiple meanings for words uh, relatively quickly. So by the time they're three or four, they're learning nine new words a day. Um, So in one study we did that you're alluding to, this was run by um, my graduate student, Sammy Floyd. Uh, she looked at toddlers, they were two-year-olds, and she was looking at whether they recognized um, multiple familiar meanings for English words. So did they recognize, for example, that the word cap um, could either refer to a baseball cap or a um, pen cap? And um, she did that by following their eye gaze when the pictures of of one of those meanings and a foil were put on the screen. And children did reliably look at both of those individual meanings for the English words. And then, remarkably, she also tested possible potential meanings that didn't exist in English. So in English, if you look at um, a Tupperware container and you pull off the top, that's not a cap. That We would call that a lid, right? But in Spanish, they would use the same word tapa for this. And... Um, The babies, when they heard the word cap and one of the choices was a lid or a foil, a different object, they also looked at the, at the lid, indicating that they used the meanings that they knew to extend, um, to extend what they understood cap to mean in English. But there was a difference in, so, so they were, um, more, they looked more clearly at the two English meanings than at the related Spanish meaning. And that seems to indicate that they remember the English meanings. They remember both of them. Um, The Spanish meaning isn't just the same, but they're able to get there from the English meanings. So it shows that we have this strong memory for what we've experienced. Even very young children at two, they're they're learning multiple meanings for words. Um, And we're able to spontaneously extend these meanings.
0: Wow, it's pretty amazing. Um, And does it tell us something about maybe vocabulary learning in general, in the sense, you know, if if I'm an adult um, and I want to learn a new word, should I try to um, learn the word in context or you know, in isolation, or should I um, maybe somehow try and relate it to a category I already have in, in my mind?
1: Uh, great question. So, absolutely, you want to learn it in context. So, we all know cases where we've we've tried to learn vocabulary using flashcards, but then we have no idea how to use those words, um, and the, the context is usually very, very important, right? So, there's subtle differences. Um, if you just learn, for example, that the word bachelor means unmarried man, which it does, you might incorrectly decide that the Pope is a bachelor, right? Which which isn't appropriate because you have to know how the word is used. Um, And then you're right. um, Attaching the new meaning to a familiar meaning is usually helpful. And we usually do that. So when we have new... When we encounter new um, entities, like when the computer was invented and we had to decide what to call the files and the garb, the trash and the folders, we used familiar words that we already had. We just extended those meanings to the non-physical element. And that helps um, both speakers because you already know how to say those words and you know what they mean. And it also helps listeners because they can figure out what's meaning, what's intended
0: flashcard type learning systems and also especially like spaced repetition systems are enormously popular um, amongst a lot of second language learners Um, and and personally I don't understand why because I can't think of anything more boring myself Um, and and there's kind of an obsession there's an obsession with you know if I get 10,000 words I'll have fluency
1: yeah and uh, right so i don't think that can work because you have to know how do you, what context to use the words in and it you know so native speakers know which words go together um and if you ever want to sound like a native speaker you have to learn that so we talk about arousing suspicions we don't talk about rising suspicions it, it we would know what it means it would mean the same thing but it just doesn't sound right um, but if you learned each word independently, you wouldn't know that these words go together and those words don't. Um, so I don't think there's any um, way around. Ultimately, if you want to sound like a native speaker, to learn language in context.
0: So we've 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 talked a little bit about about kind of input. So about you know it, it's important to to take in language um, you know in in context and. And actually, what's really interesting is a lot of, pretty much everybody that I've spoken to, including like polyglots and, and other, other kind of people who work in the world of English learning, they always advocate very strongly for huge amounts of input. Like, input is is everything if you want to learn a language. But I'm wondering, what's your... Sort of opinion on on also the importance of, of output of, of expression of the things that you know.
1: Well, that is important, and we know it is important because there are lots of children who grow up with around parents who know another language, and the parents speak to each other and the child understands. But those children often say that they're unable to speak because they haven't practiced. Um so, it would. It is easier for them to learn to speak than it is for a child who doesn't understand the language. But there is another hurdle. There is another piece to the puzzle in learning to use it. Um, at the same time, there is some controversy about learning about using a language too quickly, because it's possible that the mistakes you make as an early learner will be reinforced by your own repetition of those errors. So. You know, in, in first language acquisition, when you're learning your native language, you don't actually say much for the first, you know, two and a half years. So there's a lot of listening before you're producing much. And it's possible that that plays some advantageous role.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and, and also when when you do start to speak, you, you make a lot of mistakes, right? I mean, I have a son who's five years old and even now he some of the irregular verbs he will use the ed ending in the past like he'll say i i goad to the park for example um and right. but it seems but they these things seem to mm, they they go away without without me correcting them
1: oh absolutely absolutely and there have been studies done that show that overt corrections aren't needed so some parents do correct their children overtly but a lot of them don't and that makes sense, right? If if your son said "me loves you, Daddy," you're not likely to correct his English. You, you're more likely to give him a hug, right? And um, so we all respond to the content more than the form. Um, and and but yet we do learn to speak like those around us. Ultimately, um, those the the overgeneralization, like using saying goad, it follows a pattern in English where. All of like any new word would get that duh ending for the past tense. Um, so those mistakes are indications that your son has recognized implicitly that generalization. One thing that I wonder is, well, let, let me let me change the example slightly to a case where meaning is important. So um, young kids also uh, Overgeneralized word meaning. So uh, young kids will often refer to any animal as a dog. And um, But if you show them a picture of, say, a cow and a dog and ask them which one is the dog, they reliably get it right. And so that seems to t- indicate that they know what dog means, but they don't have a better word at the moment of speaking. And I wonder, this hasn't been tested but i suspect that your son if you ask him which sounds better i went to the store or i go to the store i bet he might know that i went to the store is better but at the moment of speaking goad was more accessible
0: yeah but uh, and 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 my question and i actually asked this question to josh hartshorn when i spoke to him i said because he was talking about you know how we're not really learning grammar rules. Like, he doesn't know that it's verb plus ed. He doesn't have that rule in his mind. He has it stored in some other type of way that's not a rule but it creates... I, I, I struggle to imagine how that works, you know, and then also like your your ex-colleague um, Ben Ambridge, um, you know, is now promoting this the radical exemplar theory where children remember everything, like
1: absolutely everything. I think they're right. I think they're both right, actually. So, um, well, when linguists talk about a rule, what they tend to mean is is sort of an algebraic, explicit rule that it always either works or doesn't work, that it's very clear-cut. Um, and it's very abstract. Whereas what Josh Hartshorn and Ben and I agree on is that instead what... what you're doing is you're amassing and clustering examples in memory, and because those examples are clustered in memory because they're related to one another, they all have the duh ending, for example, that um, when you have a new case, if there's no better way to say it, you rely on the way that the mass of variable other instances have been produced.
0: And and so maybe it does sort of say that, um, well, it just shows the importance of input if you are trying to learn maybe a second language, because, um, well, and th- this is something that's kind of surprised me in, in the limited reading I've done about about human memory, is that actually humans, human memory is pretty incredible, right? Like, we underestimate our ability to subconsciously absorb things. Is that fair? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's so true. And people for decades underappreciated that, especially in language. But now we know that we have this vast memory where it's not that we can recall things at will. I, for one, have a terrible ability to remember people's names or remember where my shoes are, but um, implicitly. So there was a, an experiment um, done where people had to look at a list of 2,500 different images of random objects. And then um, then they were shown uh, a- after looking at these images for about six seconds each over a period of hours, they were shown the same objects in a different position and, uh, and also other kinds of objects that they hadn't seen. And they were asked, did you see this image before, this exact image? And people were accurate at at identifying the exact image they'd seen as opposed to, say, a briefcase that's closed versus a briefcase that's open or half of a cantaloupe versus a quarter of a cantaloupe at at a level of 90%. People were amazingly accurate. Yeah, and and, um, we've done some studies in our own lab showing that verbatim memory for language is also very strong. And so it's not that if I ask you, repeat the sentence I just said back to me, that you could do it. But if forced to identify, did I say this or did I say this, you would be way above chance in getting that right. Mm,
0: Interesting. Um, And and this actually sort of brings me on to the next, your next piece of work, which is um, uh, non-native speakers do not take uh, competing alternative expressions into account. Could you sort of just explain that that work a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, this is related to the idea that um, for native speakers, well, yeah, for native speakers, um, we don't generally get corrected for mistakes we make. And so the question is, how do we ever learn to avoid them? How does your son ever learn to use went systematically instead of goad? And the answer seems to be that you, you, um, he might anticipate goad, but he's going to systematically hear went in that context. That is went and goad compete for, compete with one another. And this idea that you might expect something, but hear something else, and that that process of getting an error um, will help you shape your your language. Um, so, I I'm convinced that this is exactly how uh, native speakers learn to avoid things that make sense, but native speakers just don't say so things like "explain me this." That's a title of a book I just published, and. It sounds odd to native speakers, even more odd when I say, um, I'm going to explain you this. Um, but how do we know that? Well, I would say the reason we know that is because we've, um, we have we might have expected to hear explain you this. There context contexts where it's appropriate, and we know what it me- would mean. But instead, we systematically hear explain this to me. So what we did with non-native speakers was we looked to see whether they um, Seem to uh, seem to take into account whether there exists a better alternative. So we all say novel things sometimes, um, and and we know they're novel, but they're they're still acceptable. So um, you know uh, the crumbliness of this cookie, for example, we might not have heard crumbliness before, but we know it's fine. Um, and uh, so. It's not novelty in itself that makes something unacceptable. It's, I think, that we have a better way to say it. But non-native speakers in in the tests that we've done, except at the highest levels of proficiency, they seem to have trouble um, taking into account whether there is a better way to say something. So they know what they've heard. They know what sounds familiar. They do know when something sounds novel, but they're not treating the things that have a better alternative, a conventional way to say those things, as, um, as less acceptable. So, and in fact, they do tend to say, explain me this, and, and, and believe that that's reasonably acceptable, whereas Native Americans don't like it.
0: <laughs> and, and, but how much of that can be explained by maybe interference from their native language?
1: Well, that's a really good question, and we we actually were able to look at that in the, in one of these newer studies, um, and that is so uh, we tested two different constructions, and in one one was the this construction like explain me this, and another was the um, he forced that she leave, and it turns out that Spanish makes exactly the same contrast that English does in the force cases, but they don't make the difference between um, explain and give the way English does. So they have one distinction and they don't have the other. But it was sort of a surprise to us. That had played no role. They were more generous in both cases. That is, transfer effects or interference from your first language or your more dominant language no doubt play a role. They absolutely play a role. But I think there's something above and beyond that. And the way we think of it is, when you're speaking a less dominant language, your second language, you have to inhibit your first language, and that that is your first language competes with your second language. But because you have to inhibit your first language, it may mean that competition within the second language isn't as effective.
0: Oh, I see. So it's and and what's interesting is you said it's not because maybe they don't have enough examples stored in their mind. It's not because of that. It's just because. They don't have the cognitive um, kind of horsepower to to process the alternatives. Maybe because it's busy, it's busy trying to stop them from speaking Spanish. Well,
1: exactly. That that's really the idea. I mean, I will say at high at the highest levels of proficiency, they can they do learn these things. So I don't think it's independent of in, input um, and the number of examples, but but it does look like you know those certain kinds of examples are surprisingly sticky even with a lot of input that they non native speakers will will continue to make them you know even when they're fairly proficient even when they're going to college say in, in the united states
0: mm. and 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 i wonder if if maybe the stickiness is is maybe due to what you said before is that they the, they, they practiced these, these kind of bad forms too early and they got stuck, right?
1: Yeah, no, that could absolutely be that they're right. Their own productions provide input too, and that may have reinforced it. You're right. That definitely could play a role.
0: <laughs> I would be super interested in seeing, and I don't know how you would ever know this, but you know I, I'd be interested to see how this would be affected by how much output they produce. Like, in terms of, you know, um, if you put someone in conversation uh, for 600 hours, you know, would that would that then reduce these errors more than if you set them just to read for 600 hours? Like, I'd be curious about the results of that.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Well, and I, I suspect that the children of parents who speak another language, these they're called heritage um, speakers, I bet, well, I don't know, that's an empirical question, but when they learn the language do they learn it without with and make fewer errors i bet they might
0: yeah um it's actually a really it's actually this this whole subject is fascinating to me about because this is exactly the situation that a majority of language learners find themselves in when they go through the education system the way that we teach languages right cuz what we do is we we train them we basically train them to be heritage speakers. We give them all this input, and we give them lots of grammar practice and lots of vocabulary, and we never train them to use it. And so they kind of get locked um, in this in this horrible situation where they they can do an exam and get a great mark, and they can they can you know do a worksheet and they can they know what the words mean, but they just can't have a conversation.
1: Well, that's interesting. But then that might predict that that's not a terrible route in, but at that point, you need to become immersed. You need to, um, you need to use the language in order to become fluent and to know when to use those phrases and those words, when it's appropriate. Um, but it, it might be a leg in, right? If, because what we what you suggested, I think might be true that producing errors ingrains those errors in your memory, right? So you're, it's harder to get away from them. But I don't know, in classrooms, you are producing too, right? You have to write down the answers. So if you're doing it incorrectly, it could also be reinforced.
0: You know, I'm interested in the idea that language use is language learning, um, wow. And I, I think it's it's the kind of, it's the objective of basically everybody that I know who, who wants to learn a language. It's not really their objective to be a grammar expert. It's their objective to be able to go in, do stuff, right? Like go to the supermarket or get a job or whatever.
1: Absolutely. Well, learning the explicit rules um, or the rules explicitly or the generalizations explicitly doesn't do, you know, that doesn't serve a clear purpose. Uh, whereas- Yeah, learning to use the language is certainly helpful, but heritage speakers are using the language. They're comprehending it. Right. So, in you know, from their parents. So if if the input is massive in a classroom and they need to comprehend it, that is a form of using it.
0: I I suppose I I never really um, I never really thought about usage in that way, as in it could only be in one direction. But but you're absolutely right. I mean,
1: it is in both directions. But but it's not only production, right? It can be also comprehension.
0: Would would your suggestion to an adult learner? Would your suggestion to be to try and learn language like a child, like maybe to just sort of throw yourself in and you don't know what anybody's saying, and you just kind of just do your best, and it might take ten years, or or would you? Would you recommend something more, more kind of structured like, you know, a little bit of grammar, some flashcards?
1: As you say, I, I'm far from an expert. You're much more of an expert than, than I am. I, I suspect that people are different, that ideally if you, So what we know is that if you're immersed in a new language, you will learn it. Even if you're older, you will learn enough to, to communicate. If that's the only means of communication, you'll learn to get by. Um, whereas flashcards you may give up on. Um, but in a classroom setting, I think there are certain kinds of people who may feel too inhibited or too, um, they, they prefer to look at language analytically, and for them it might be too frustrating to learn as children do. So you know, I think there might be some individual variation there
0: what general advice would you give to to an adult who who really wants to learn a language is it should they focus on on kind of input or or output or what would be your your general advice based on what you know about the way that we learn languages
1: so i think yeah input is important and one thing we know plays a big role is um and and we it's more useful to know the words and phrases that are used most often. So focus on those first, right? Because you're going to use those most. And that will help you then understand more. Um, so I think I, I was talking to some second language instructors here, and uh, they were saying that the way it's often taught is by topics. So if you're teaching about traveling, you might learn the word for windshield wiper. but You don't, you're never going to need the word for windshield wiper. Um, It's so low frequency and you can always point if you need it changed. Um, And so it it seems like more naturalistic input where the natural frequencies um, appear in their with their natural um, preferences, I think would be important.
0: And just one final question, because obviously you've dedicated most of your life to to, to languages and, and understanding languages. Why, why do you think it's important language?
1: Well, you know, I think language is endlessly fascinated fascinating. I, fascinating. I, I'm interested in how people think and and what makes humans special, and um, uh, and really how language is this incredibly complex skill. You know, we're able to formulate sentences without without reflecting at all, and we're able to comprehend sentences on the order of milliseconds. So it's a stunningly amazing ability that everyone can do, you know, except if severely impaired um, people, rare populations, some autistic children never learn to speak. But aside from them, most people learn a language. So how do we do this? It's just this puzzle to me that I find endlessly fascinating.
0: Um, Well, Adele Goldberg, thank you very much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Christian. Really fun.